I just want to start by mentioning the chorus we just sang. And, and one of the things, as we sing worship, please be listening to the words. Please be understanding the words we're singing and not just singing because we sing. Behold our God seated on His throne. Come let us adore Him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come let us adore Him. Do you believe those words this morning? Amen. God is our, our He's seated on the throne. He's our King. Now, we, we say we believe that, right? And I'm not challenging whether we believe that or not, but this morning, Isaiah is going to challenge us to put that into practice. Do we really believe he's king and over all things? Do we believe that on his throne, he knows what is best for us? Or do we think we know what's best for ourselves? Right? And... and, and We know in our heads that God knows what's best for us. We know in our head that He is executing His plan. But when it gets right down to it, and it's something I don't like, it's frustrating. You know, a couple weeks ago, um, Susie was able to watch one of our one of our kids. I almost used their name. um, Was able to watch one of our kids, and we have a new and exciting feature of our backyard, and that coyotes go through there almost every day. And we have small pets. And um, coyotes love small pets. For not not necessarily to pet them, but um, other reasons. And so Mark is at the door. One of our cats just loves to be outside. And and the the cat I, I said the name, didn't I? Okay, sorry. <laughs> He'd be okay with that. <laughs> he he's at the door, and and Panda is really his cat. And and Panda is this incredible cat that's almost like a dog. And so dog lovers, you'd love him too. Um, and Panda's meowing to go outside because he's out the screen door. It looks beautiful out there. It is everything he wants. And Mark is standing there going, Panda, this isn't good for you. This isn't what's best. There's, there's danger out there you don't know about. The little coyote will come and chomp you into little pieces. And, and you can't go out there. It's dangerous. And, and P- Panda's a cat. So Panda's like, ooh, look, outside. Let's go. And, and, and Mark's sitting there giving him all the reasons why he knows best that Panda shouldn't go out there. And Susie's in the back doing a little happy dance. You, you know, moms, dads, you know how it is when, when your kids repeat something you've been teaching them and, and they, they start to integrate it. And, and what a great picture. And, and, and she and Mark were able to talk about that, that that's how God is with us. You know, we're, we're the little cat at the door thinking, I want, I want, I want. This is what's best for me. This is what will make me happy. Give me, give me, give me. And God is saying, oh, my child, oh, if you only knew the dangers that that path led you to, oh, if you only knew the problems that would come from those actions. And and so many times we view God's commands as these horrible things that a a mean king wants to implement and, and control us with. And in reality, God is saying, I love you, I care about you. And these are my instructions for how to live a fulfilled life in me. And abide in me. When I say don't do something, it's because I know what path that leads to. Not because I want to kill your joy. And Mark got it that day. Now I know it's a lesson he'll still learn and and I'm still learning and you're still learning. But we come to Isaiah and and in in chapters 46 and 47, that's really this, this theme that we're going to. The title today is God cares enough to act on his plans even when we don't like them. 
He cares enough for you and for me to act on his plans, to implement his plans, even if we don't like them, even if we don't understand, even if we can't see where they're going, because we can't, because we're not God. And so as you know, in some of the history, and we've been trying to to really teach a lot of the background of Isaiah so we understand it, this is written by Isaiah, and it's written around 700 um, B.C., but it's written to a people that will be 150 years later that are in Babylon in captivity. Judah has been taken into captivity, and again, this is written 150 years before, but the target audience is now after almost 70 years in captivity, what do these people need to hear? And the Holy Spirit through Isaiah is telling them what God wants them to hear. And what has happened, and we know it's from Ezra and Nehemiah and and, um, some of the other books, Hosea, some of the contemporary books, the people now almost 70 years in Babylon, some of them are losing heart. Some of them are wondering, well, okay, where is God now? God has, has abandoned us. Where's Yahweh, which is his name? And all around they see that the gods of Babylon seem to be flourishing. And Babylon seems to be flourishing. And you have Marduk and you have some of the other gods there. And some of the children of Israel now are starting to think, oh, their God is better than Yahweh. Their God wins. And so you see, you, you see all kinds of instruction in, in these chapters of Isaiah, in some of the other prophets, beware of idolatry. Remember we had little little bottom bear up here and we built our own little idol out of wood and, and how silly it was? Isaiah is going to come back to that because the people are, are wondering, maybe that God will serve me better than my God. Maybe there's something to this, or maybe he'll give me more of what I want than they will. And, and some, of, some of Judah had undoubtedly sort of integrated into society, and they're starting to buy into society around them, which we see the church doing in our culture today, as we're buying into the, the cultural revolution, they call it, of sin. And so the people needed to be reminded, there is only one God. There is only one way to salvation. Even if you don't understand his plans, his plans are good and right and just and loving. Trust him. And really, this this passage is going to represent Isaiah's last call to the people to trust God. to, To say, leave your idols behind. God is executing his plan. As we talked about two weeks ago and last week... Part of his plan that he announces to them, he's he's going to use Cyrus to redeem them from Babylon and restore them to the land. And if you remember, Cyrus was also a pagan corrupt king known for cruelty. And so for them, those that are 150 years later hearing this and reading this, and all of a sudden Cyrus comes on the scene, they're like, oh, that's what Isaiah was talking about. But they would be disturbed by that and say, how could God call Cyrus our Messiah, our shepherd, this is wrong. God, we're waiting for a Davidic king that's going to free us and restore our kingdom. But God had other plans because ultimately that king would be Jesus Christ, a much better king than any man, a king that would come and not only free us or or give them hope here on earth, but would give them hope for all eternity because he alone could wipe away their sins and our sins. That gives us sort of the background, the sweeping scope of things as we come to Isaiah 46 and 47. So please turn there with me. Isaiah 46 and 47. 
And this morning I want to work through these passages and work through the verses and just follow the arguments. Isaiah is making some real logical, orderly arguments here. And so we're just going to follow along with him. And, and I pray that God's word will speak to us as we do this morning. Isaiah 46 and 47. And if you, if you look at this, think of those two chapters as two different points and you have two different points in your notes. The first point is to stop, this is instruction from God, stop clinging to your own idolatrous plans and idols and trust my care. Stop clinging, clinging to your own idolatrous plans and idols and trust my care. In the next chapter, we're going to see his plan enacted and it'll be God's just and right plan is enacted. Babylon is brought to justice as God gives them, I think in grace and in love, a little window into what he's doing. A little window in how he's going to work. And God does that for us sometimes. Sometimes we, we trust, just trusting who he is and we don't see anything. And sometimes he gives us little glimpses of what he's doing. And it's really cool. And that's what he's doing in, in chapter 47. But let's start with chapter 46. Stop clinging to your own idolatrous plans and idols and trust my care. And we're going to see in this chapter God reaffirming his care for Israel. And we can understand that's his care for us too, his people. And that he will continue his plans even if they don't buy into it. Even if they don't like Cyrus. He's like, this is best for you. This is what I'm going to do. So the first part of his argument is, and, and he's going to do this by comparing Babylon and all their idols and their worldview to God's worldview and that he alone is God. And in verses 1 and 2, Babylon and its burdensome idols will fall. Babylon and its burdensome idols will fall. And as we read through chapter 46, look for words like burden and carry and heavy because that's a theme that he's going to use to contrast the two worldviews here. In verse 1, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And he starts by talking about Babylon's gods, by their idols. You see two names there, and he names them again 150 years earlier. He names them. Bel is a general name meaning Lord or God. Many think that it's related to Baal that we see throughout the Old Testament. The Philistine God, that was, again was just a general name for Lord or God. And this was the God that, as you see in Scripture and in history actually, was tied with Marduk. This was another name for Marduk. We talked about him last week. The patron god of Babylon, the god of the sun. He's represented as a warrior, soldier, sometimes riding a dragon. So that was the strength of Babylon. That was their god. Nebo was Bel's son. You know, the, the gods all have their own stories, right? And drama, it's a little soap opera going on. Nebo was Bel's son, and he was the patron god of nearby Borsippa, and he was the god of wisdom. And, and you see, even some names come from their gods, because if you could incorporate their name into yours, you had more power, right? So think of some names that Bel started with. Belshazzar, who was ruling in Babylon when it fell, ironically. And there, there's some, some things there. Um, Nebo, Nebuchadnezzar comes from Nebo. So Nebuchadnezzar was taking his name off one of their gods. Um, Nabonidus we see in, in, in um, Babylon. And, and so you see these names representing these gods. And so Isaiah is saying, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. They are humbled. Now look back just three verses. Okay, 45, verse 23. says, every knee will bow. 
Isn't that cool? And so God is saying, no, every knee will bow, even the gods of Babylon. And so he starts this chapter saying, Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. And, and we know they would cart their idols around. One of their festivals that they would have, they would bring Nebo um, on a cart to, to Babylon so he could see Dad and they could be in a parade together, Dad being Bell, and they'd parade these two together on these carts. And Isaiah, God through Isaiah, is really mocking this a little bit. Is this really a powerful God that you have to have a donkey carry it? And in fact, last week he mentioned sometimes your God, you have a little version of your God in your pocket. I think our kids did little idols a few weeks back. That would fit in your pocket, right? So they'd have little, little figures like that in their pockets. And look, look, this is my God. <laughs> Powerful God. Big God. Yeah. And, and he's mocking him here. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. Things you carry. That's the pocket idea. They're born as burdens by weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together, and then he gets to their end. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. This country you think might be so great, maybe that you're tempted to start worshiping their God instead of Yahweh, their gods are going to fall. Their gods are going to bow. Their gods are just a burden. How can they carry you if you have to carry them is really the theme through the whole first half of this chapter. How can they carry you if you have to carry them. You know, there, there's a, a number of things, even in these verses, that I think of when we apply to today and we apply to, to trouble and trials and where I don't see God working or I wish He'd work a different way. Those things that we're worried about that seem so big, they're nothing compared to God. Nothing. There was a, a little meme on, on Facebook this week, I think Tim Challey's page, that said, in 20,000 years, your worries of today won't mean anything. Amen? Because in 20,000 years, we're going to be singing holy, holy, holy to the King of Kings. Perspective. Perspective. And as I read this, I see Isaiah trying to give the people perspective. They stoop, they bow down, they themselves go into captivity. Don't go that direction. I mean, think about this. Think about this just from a logical perspective. Why did I have to explain to you who Bel and Nebo were? Because we don't worship them anymore. They're dead. They're stinking. Actually, burning. They're idols. They, they've been burned up. They're, they aren't God. If they were God, I wouldn't have had to explain them to you. And that is so true of so many things that we worship and things that we chase after. So he sets up this idea that these are burdensome gods that they, they, they have to be carried and it, the beasts are even weary carrying them. And so his next step is to compare them to God, the true God, Yahweh, our living, loving God carries and sustains his own every moment. And these are my, these are my favorite verses out of the two chapters. Our living, loving God carries and sustains his own every moment. Listen to me in verse 3, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel. So he's talking, all of you who are in captivity, listen to me, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. Amen? And what he's reminding them, even before you were conceived, I was watching out for you. 
because I knew you were coming. I knew you. And, and he takes these words to span their entire lifespan, actually before their lifespan, until their old age, and to say, I've been carrying you the whole time. You were born by me. Do you see how that's a, a word for, for carry? B-O-R-N-E. You were lifted up by me before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. And, and all of these words are, are used to show us a God that lifts us up when we aren't able. That takes us when we are incapable of handling a situation or of knowing what to do. That he's the one that's lifting us up and giving us wisdom and giving us strength. And in case we don't get it, we have the four staccato sentences at the end of four. I have made, remember, reminding us he's creator, I will bear I will lift you up. I will carry you. I will carry and I will save. Some of your translations use words like sustain in there. Um, Instead of save, some translations use rescue. One particular version I liked said, I will shoulder you. And all of these are are really designed to, to be used together to say, God's got you. God's got you. Even after 70 years in Babylon, even when you're under his discipline because you've blown it, God's got you. What an encouraging thing to hear for them. What an encouraging thing to hear for us. I don't care what you're going through this morning. If you are God's son and daughter, God's got you. He is lifting you up. He will give you strength through that. Nothing today you are experiencing is out of God's ability to sustain. Oh, do I take great joy in that. That's a promise. And as we talked about last week, nothing you're going through today is something that God isn't using for your perfection, for your maturity. Another interesting thing here, as you look at those two verses, the emphasis here is on I. And, and not, not as an I, Pastor Ron, but God, Yahweh is speaking, and, and all through it, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the Roman Israel who have been born by me from before your birth. But verse 4, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made. I will bear. I will carry. I will save. So how much of that is, is our work? None. Picture a knocked out, unconscious person that's being lifted by paramedics to, to be saved. That's sort of the picture here. The guy being lifted, he does nothing. He's dead weight. You and I, if we look at our abilities compared to God's abilities, we're dead weight. Some of you with little kids, you, you know the difference when they're dead weight versus when they're helping you carry them, right? It is, it's night and day. They double in weight, I tell you. We can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough good works. We can't find fulfillment in anything else. And for me, this is God saying, you know what? Stop trying. I'm the one that does this. Trust me. Come to me. From before the womb. So then in verse 5, he takes these two arguments. He's, he's shown us the gods of, of Babylon. 
they don't carry, but at, rather they have to be carried. Do you see, you see his irony here where he's going? And in four, 3 and 4, he's saying, but Yahweh, I, I carry you. You don't have to carry me. And so now in the next few verses, he compares the two and sort of drives it home just in case we don't get it. So point number three there is, so let's compare the living burden-bearing God with dead burdensome idols. Let's compare the living burden-bearing God with dead burdensome idols. Verse five, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? And God's asking him the question, okay, so, so who, who compares? Who's like me? The wording there is the idea of who's on level terms with me. And, and this speaks to today because he's attacking the whole world view that there are many gods and many gods lead to heaven. Well, no, that, 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 that isn't even logical. You can't have conflicting truth claims. But he's saying, no, let's look and find truth. And the only living God is the only one that can save. And so he's not even saying, compare me as equals. He's using this to say, there are no equals. There are no gods, little g, even in the same category. It is a contest between those that have made, or not those, but God who makes, God who creates, and the gods, little g, that have been created. And there is no contest. And he he goes there in verses 6 and 7, and we come back to idolatry. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales... Hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Remember what we did with the, the metal and the wood and everything, where you cut it in half, and half is firewood, half is a god. Woo! Um, he's saying, okay, you do the same thing with God. You take your gold and your silver, your riches. You hire somebody, and they, they smelt it into a god, and you worship that. It makes no sense. Seven, and here we get the burden bearing again. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer and save him from his trouble. Why not? A, it's not alive. B, it's stuck in its place. It can't help you. And Isaiah is showing the absurdity of trusting in anything for our security, for our safety, for our salvation, trusting in anything other than the living, burden-bearing God. If you have to carry it somewhere, if you have to stand it up and maybe bolt it in place, it can't carry you. Man, we can apply that today. If we have to earn the money and save the money, it can't satisfy you. It can't be our God. If we have to build the house, if we have to take care of the house, which is an ongoing burden, isn't it? As roofs leak and faucets break and who knows what happens. That stuff can never be a God and can never satisfy. It will never carry us. We have to carry it. Oh, what a contrast. See, Isaiah is setting up a choice. And he's asking them to make this choice right before God's going to enable them to go home. Because we know some choose not to. Some choose poorly. And he's saying, here's your choice. You can be carried or keep carrying your ever-getting-heavier gods? What would you choose? And man, when you put it like that, it makes a lot of sense, right? We're like, why would anyone choose Bell or Nebo or money or relationships or anything else we elevate as more imp- the most important thing in our lives? 
but we do because we don't believe God is king and that he is working. See, Isaiah is lingering on idols because they're part of life. For them, it was a constant struggle. For us, it's a constant struggle. We have things that are important to us, things that take over our mind, that consume us. The latest blank. And we talked about this two weeks ago in chapter 44. We, we saw his arguments there that idols can't rise above their makers. They can't rise above their materials. And where he's, the, the last thing he said in 44, which is what he's focusing here, they blind us from seeing that they're idols. Idolatry is delusional. We don't see it. We don't notice it. We've got to be shaken to be able to see it. And so I, I, I think even two weeks ago when we talked about idols, we defined it as any God substitute. That's a, a really good short way to remember it. Any God substitute. A longer definition, an idol is anything that captures more of our devotion than God or anything that gets in the way of our devotion to God. Let me repeat that. An idol is anything that captures more of our devotion than God or anything that gets in the way of our devotion to God. A couple of thoughts about idols. Some out of this text, some just just observations over all three of these chapters about idols. Idols are often a perversion of things God created. Things he created for good, right? Here, what did they turn into an idol? Gold and silver. Now, now, were gold and silver in and, in and of themselves, are those idols? No. In fact, could they be used for good? Oh, yeah. The temple, God instructed them to plate things with gold in honor of him, to give glory to him. And so the gold and the silver wasn't the issue, but idols are often perversions of things that God created for good. In Hosea 8, 4, a contemporary, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. And he, he, we, we make idols out of stuff that God has intended to be part of his creation. We do this a lot. I think of some of the examples that we talked about about what are idols for us today. And, you know, I've already mentioned money. And money and success and wealth can be an idol. And we can be obsessed with our 401ks and, and the stock market and checking it you know, every three minutes of the day. Is money bad? No. Money can be used for God's glory, right? Money can be used to feed my family. They like that. Money can be used to do ministry. But the love of money becomes an idol. And we take something good and it becomes an idol. You know, we, we, we talked about relationships can be an idol and the need to be in a relationship or to be in a romantic relationship or to have a relationship look just like it does in the movies and the novels. It doesn't, guys. It's better and harder and better. And, and relationships aren't bad. They are a gift of God for our joy and for our ability to follow Him and to serve Him. But yet people idolize them, especially when they're in, in either a, a bad relationship or they're lonely. And, and we're like, we'll do anything for a relationship and it becomes an idol. We take what God has intended for good, the created that He has made to give Him glory, and we glory in it and we make it a God. And that is so dangerous. Idols are often perversions of things God created for good. 
because of that, we can slip into them really easily. And we can make an idol out of something good because its importance rises above God's importance. Second thought, and this is one that we've seen on almost every verse on this chapter so far, idols are burdensome. Idols are burdensome. And I don't just mean, you know, the, the bear out of the piece of wood. Serving something other than God always brings burden. Always. I mentioned it with the house. You know this. You buy a house or you buy whatever it is. You glory in your car or your boat or, or whatever it is. Those things now require upkeep, right? And it requires time. And so devotion and those things become burdens on us. When people seek fulfillment in alcohol or drugs, those things so quickly become burdens. Because anything that is not God eventually, and follow the logic of this, anything that is not God eventually will not satisfy. And so you need more of it or something, a more extreme version of it. And so maybe your God and your idol is travel and personal experiences. That's huge in our culture today. We value personal experiences more than almost anything else as a culture. And maybe that's your, well, okay, so great. You, you have this great experience to Europe and you see this and you see that. Then what do you do next summer? You have to increase it, right? You have to increase it. Same thing with pornography. We use pornography and, and God created the intimacy of marriage as a good, beautiful thing to seal the covenant of marriage. And we take substitutes in relationship and pornography because we're trying to have our own good But in pornography, as you get into it, what happens? It doesn't satisfy. And you have to escalate that to the next level and get harder stuff and get different stuff. Idols are burdens. They they take us captive. We must, must watch out for them. I want to read a paragraph that Oswald wrote on this. And I know it's hard to read to a group, but this one I think is particularly understandable to hear it. But he explains it so well as he talks about idols. I am referring to all the things that have come to replace God in our lives. Perhaps a job, a house, a car, a love relationship, or even one's self-image. Think about that. The pagans personalize all these, but they were seeking in the gods what we seek in these These are the things that give us our sense of identity and meaning in life. Yet many of us are suffering from burnout or breakdown because we have all these things to carry and they have become too much for us. We need them for what they do for us, but the burdens they impose are devastatingly heavy. Instead of our using them, they use us and the results are all around us. To escape them, we must have increasingly stimulating and exciting diversions. But then the diversions themselves become a burden. Man, he, he, he writes that so well. These things that we seek to replace God become so burdensome. Self-esteem. Taking care of ourselves can be like that. That's one of the ones he mentioned and sort of to illustrate that. Is it, is it good to take care of yourself? Yes. Be good stewards of the temple of God. But that can easily become a burden, right? I have to go to the gym for the fourth time today. Because I have to look perfect. 
because I'll feel better about myself if I do. And there's all kinds of things wrong with that train of thought. None of it, none of it is recognizing God as creator and God. What's most important to you? That's your God. Idols don't transform. I mentioned this two weeks ago. They malform. Idols don't regenerate. They degenerate. So how do we make sure we're not living for idols? And I, I want to just suggest one question. And, and I know up front this is a question that I ask you to ask on just about everything because I think it solves just about everything. So if there ever is a, a miracle cure for spiritually, this is it. Does this bring glory to God? Does this bring glory to God? Now, this is a great thing to think about today on Super Bowl. Sports can be an idol. And, and the Super Bowl sort of celebrates our idols with commercials, with sports. It's the, I, I think it's still, I don't know, you can correct me, but I think it's still the largest watched show of the year. I think that's why in, um, commercials for 30 seconds are going for about $5 million this year. That, that's a little bit of money. So, we have to ask the question, does this bring glory to God? And you're probably thinking, well, you're doing Super Bowl parties. Here's the thing. Sports can be great. It's a good thing. It's a good thing even to compete and to, to, it can build bonds. But what we do with that can define whether it's an idol or used for God's glory. This is why we're doing Super Bowl parties. Let's watch this together. Let's enjoy each other's company. Let's be family together and use it as an opportunity to deepen our relationships with each other. No, the Super Bowl's not evil. Even if your team's not in it this year. But how do we use these things? You know, I, I mentioned marriage and family. And, and a couple of weeks ago I said that can become an idol if that becomes more important than God. But the question is, how does my family glorify God? Do you see how this question can answer? It, it, it answers idolatry if I think, how can, I, how can this be used to glorify God? How can my family serve God? My family doesn't exist to make me a really happy man. My family exists so that I can serve God and they can serve God to the best possible way. What is the chief end of man? To bring glory to God. That's why I think this question answers almost everything spiritually that ails us. That's how we combat idolatry. Let's move on because we're not going to be here till one. <laughs> but I love this section. Verses 8 through 13, the rest of the chapter. Commit yourself in trusting the living and active God in his will. So he, he's told us about false gods. He's told us about the true God that carries us. He's compared the two, and now he says, answer, commit to him, and he comes back to his plan that they might not like. That's his test here is, you might not like or understand what I'm doing, but will you trust me because I am the God who cares for you and carries you? Remember this and stand firm in verse 8. He, he's saying, okay, let's go back. Let's remember who God is. Remember all these things. Stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors. And I think, wow, that's pretty harsh. But he's, he's, in some versions it says, you rebellious ones. He's addressing Judah who is starting to consider walking away from God again, even in the middle of discipline. 
And he's saying, don't rebel. Don't follow Nebo or Bel or, or any of the gods. Stand firm. Recall it to mind. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. We saw that phrase five, six times in the last chapter. That's the theme of this section. There is no other God that works. Everything else makes lousy, lousy gods. Remember me. Remember the former things. Ten, he gives some of his credentials. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. And he's reminding them that his ways have been planned from all eternity. His plan will happen. I've declared the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Even the fact that he's named Bel, Nebo, and Cyrus here proves this point. 150 years ago, when Isaiah wrote this, I named them. Let this be a reassurance to you now that I've got this. I will accomplish all my purposes, God says. Think about that. If you are a child of God, that is the most encouraging thing we might read today. I will accomplish all my purposes. If you don't know God, that is probably the scariest thing that we'll read today. Because God is God. He is just. He is loving. He will accomplish his purposes. He will make things right. And so 11, he comes back to Cyrus, calling a bird of prey from the east. And that's, that's Cyrus, the Medo-Persian empire that's going to come in. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Isn't that cool? Why do we worry? Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. And he's speaking, I know you've been waiting. You've been in captivity almost 70 years now. My, my salvation is coming. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And you see at the end there, even though they're rebelling, even though it's a plan they may not like because it's Cyrus, a pagan jerk to them, God says, I'm still going to do it because I carry you. I lift you up. You're my people. You don't have to know why I'm doing it. Trust me that I'm doing it for my glory and your good. Oh, we need to hear that. Purpose and identity and fulfillment and meaning can only be met in devotion to God. God alone, because nothing else has the ability to be God, because nothing else is God's plan. See, idolatry is what keeps us from wanting God's plan. When when our cat was standing at the screen door and wanting outside, didn't care what was best, just cared what he wanted. When we fight God and say, God, this isn't the right way. I don't understand. Why are you letting this happen? We are fighting God and making an idol of self and our desires over who God is. This is why idolatry is part of this discussion. Because it is the bottom line sin that leads us to not trust God. 
we're viewing something else as more important than God's plan. Why else would we fight God's plan? And so this is a call to surrender. It's a call to say, I don't understand God's plan, but I know it's best, and I will follow it. He is working. I'd like to just take 30 seconds. Bow your heads. We're not ending yet. Some of you are getting excited. (laughs) We're still going to review the next chapter. But just bow your heads and take a moment with God. And say, God, if there are idols in my life, if there is anything I'm, I'm treating as more important than you, show me right now. Break through the delusion of idolatry. Hammer me with this God and show me. Lord God, we want to be your people. We acknowledge you as king challenge us if there are any idols in our life, if there's anything that is more important than you. Lord, reveal that to us. Even if it's painful, strip it away from us so we will be your people and trust you. In Jesus' name. Now turn to chapter 47. And in eight minutes or less. I'd like you to read 47 this week. I'm going to give you some highlights. But 47 is really God saying, Okay, here is part of my plan. Here's what I'm doing. I am going to enact it because it's just and right. God's right, just and right plan is enacted. Babylon is brought to justice. And we're going to see this today and in the next couple of chapters, we're going to see some of it repeated, so we won't dig into everything today. But just some of the history. This is, again, 150 years after Isaiah in about 539 B.C., Cyrus now of the Medo-Persian Empire is advancing on Babylon, okay? And um, Daniel 5, if you want to read Daniel 5, it records the battle, if you can call it a battle, because it happened in one night. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, King Belshazzar, Bel, you get the connection, he's at a feast, and do you remember what happens on the wall at the feast? Hand comes, and, and we have the writing on the wall, right? It's where we get the phrase. And the writing of the wall is many, many tekel upsarim. You have been measured and found wanting. <laughs> and when God says that, that's a scary thing. And while they're having this party and, and this huge event, and, and Daniel records this, the king doesn't do anything. While they're having it, Cyrus and his armies advance and take out Babylon in one night. That's why it's, it, I, I'm hesitant to call it a battle. It happened that fast. An easy victory. We don't have time today, but as you read Daniel, especially at the end of Daniel, you see that Darius is mentioned, and then Darius in chapter 6 with the lion's den. There's a couple of possibilities there, and and we can talk more about it if you want. But uh, the two major ones is Darius may have been a general under Cyrus and became the governor of this area. And, And they would, when they say king, they mean ruler. And so it could be the governor, it could be the king. Um, the other possibility is that they're the same person and they were names used for the same person. I'm about 50-50. It could be either one. I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter. Um, and so we, we could talk more about that if you're a history geek and we want to um, think about that. But think about 47 here. That's the history of what Isaiah is now going to prophesy. Again, he's prophesying this before that history happens, 150 years. Verse 1. 
Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, which was a, a reference to Babylon. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. And the first point, the first reason for God's judgment here is vengeance. God will take vengeance on the sin of Babylon. And we may think, well, that's, that's pretty harsh. How can you say God is taking vengeance? That's not a, a value that we have. The word for vengeance here, and we have to understand, words change. And so we think of vengeance as revenge and something bad. The word for vengeance here means a just and equitable response. They got their due. They deserved it. They have violated Yahweh's commands. They have oppressed Israel, as we're going to see. And so God is giving them what they deserve. And not in a vengeful, vindictive way, but in a righteous, just way. Much like you'd have a judge in a court say, this is your sentence. He's not being vindictive, right? That person is getting their justice. This is, that's how this word vengeance is used. And you saw in those verses, you saw what's happening to Babylon. She's referred to as a virgin daughter, delicate and tender. And he's basically saying, you've had it easy. No one's attacked you this whole time. That all ends tonight or in one night. This is prophesying for the future. You will no longer be called tender and delicate because of what you're going to go through. You'll be in the dust in mourning. You'll lose your throne you will no longer be wearing your fine robes because you're going to be working like a servant, millstones and grinding flour. Nakedness will be uncovered. You'll probably be taken advantage of. This is humiliation because of what they've done. Verse 4, I think, is best seen as Isaiah's response. As he sees what God is going to do to Babylon, his response is, Oh, our Redeemer. The Lord of hosts is his name. He is the Holy One of Israel. And he calls God Redeemer, God Almighty, Lord of hosts, Lord of the armies, and the Holy One because holiness must respond to sin. Verses 5 through 7 goes on a little bit to, to describe what's going to happen to them in silence and in darkness. They will no longer be the the people of all the kingdoms, the queen of all the kingdoms. In verse 6, I was angry with my people. Yahweh is speaking here. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. And so God was using their sin, using their their pagan ways as a, a way of disciplining his people. But then he says, you showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made their yoke exceedingly heavy. You took advantage of them. You didn't just take them over, but you abused them. Verse 7, you see the beginning of the next section, their arrogance. You said, I shall be mistress forever. I shall be queen forever. So that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. That simply means you didn't think it would ever end. You thought you were all that and that nobody would ever be able to come against you. And so this is God's justice. And to a people sitting in captivity, this would have been a window into God's plan that would have been so comforting. God's going to take care of it. God's going to take care of the sin. He's going to take care of the injustice. 
He is sovereign and will address sin. One of just a side note on verse 6. We have to be careful when we say that God will use anything for his glory. We have to be careful of jumping to the conclusion that that means everything is good and that there is no sin. God can use sin to his glory, but it doesn't change the fact that it was sin and must be dealt with in his holiness. Does that make sense? This is, a, a, this is understanding God's sovereignty and inhuman responsibility. God sovereignly used Babylon, but that did not justify their actions. And so their actions had to be addressed. Verses 8 through 11, and I'll fill in your blanks. God will judge because of their pride and self-centeredness. God will judge because of their pride and self-centeredness. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, think about that. I am is what they said. They used God's name. And there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, which is why I gave you the history before. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. He's dealing with their arrogance and putting themselves as their God. You know, sometimes I hear people even today say, hey, if you get away with it, it's okay. It's only sin if you get caught. That's this, this attitude. This is why God judged Babylon. No one will see me. I can do what I want. There are no consequences. That comes from the worldview that says I am God. Let her see there. God will prove their idols are powerless and he is the only God who saves. He is the only God who saves. Jump down to the end of 15 and you can read the rest of this chapter this week. Please do. The end of 15. And he's, he's just talked about their ways, their sorceries, their gods again. And he ends with this phrase, to Babylon. This is not to Israel, this is to Babylon. There is no one to save you. All your secular worldview, all your elevation of self, your armies, your pursuit of pleasure, there is no one to save you. Because guys, there is no one like our God. There is no one who compares. He is our King. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, oh, may we worship you alone. May we elevate you and your glory as the most important thing in our life. And as we do that, may we trust that your ways are better than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts because you are God and I am not. Thank you for carrying us, for bearing us up, for upholding us. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for times when we don't recognize that and we don't accept your care and we worry and we get all concerned. Help us to know your loving arms that are lifting us up and carrying us. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name.